This is Deacon Allen again, turning to the uh, third of our brief uh, you know, summaries of a lecture series that I had given some years ago at the Cathedral on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings. Uh, we begin uh, by looking again at that passage that I'd read from a, a letter uh, um, talking to his uh, friend, uh, uh, Father Robert Murray, uh, in which he talks about the Lord of the Rings as being a, a fundamentally uh, religious and Catholic work. Um, and we're going to be looking this time at Marian images within the Lord of the Rings. I remember when I was preparing this uh, original lecture some years ago, my son Peter had joked, I thought Mary was a rather minor character in the book. Of course, he was referring to Mary Adoc Brandybuck, who was one of the four hobbits uh, characters in the, in the story. But um, anyway, um, in that same letter that I quoted from before in the previous two uh, short talks here, uh, to Father Murray, uh, leading into the quote that I've led off with, uh, he says, I think I know exactly what you mean by the order of grace, and of course your references to Our Lady, upon which all my own small perceptions of beauty, both in majesty and simplicity, is founded. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision. So there I think we see we have our framework for looking at each example of what I would call a Marian image within the writings of Tolkien, and that is these two things of majesty and simplicity. Um, you know, I think about what we as Catholics understand about Mary, Mary was certainly, uh, in in a sense, very simple. I mean, she was a a girl, uh, you know, a, a teenager, uh, probably, from uh, from a backwater town of Nazareth um, to the eyes of the world. I mean, she would have seemed like an insignificant person, but here she is, the most important person. Uh, uh, at that moment when the angel of God appears to her and, and, and calls her full of grace. And, and in fact, you know, in that moment, Almighty God himself pauses and waits for a woman's answer. And it's only when she says, let it be done to me according to your will, that the incarnation even happens. So we see the simplicity of Mary, but we also in our tradition see very much the the majesty of the Queen of Heaven, or more accurately, Queen Mother of Heaven, because uh, she is the mother of our Lord. We even call her, you know, uh, the mother of God, because Jesus Christ, whom she bore in her womb, is her tru truly her son, um, and he is also king of the universe. Um we see, for example, uh, the early church fathers referring to her as the Ark of the New Covenant and uh, harking back to that passage in the middle of the book of Revelation where the, you know, uh, the, the temple in heaven is opened and the Ark of the Covenant is seen and there's a great sign appears in the heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and, on, uh, and uh, uh, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Um, and, you know, the early church fathers saw her as the Ark of the New Covenant, because according to uh, the Epistle to the Hebrews, the Ark of the Old Covenant uh, had three things that were placed in it at one point. Um, first of all, there were the two stone tablets uh, with the Ten Commandments, the very words of God written by the finger of God. But Mary bore Jesus Christ, who was the word of God made flesh, right? <laughs> and then um, the... Uh, 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 the Ark of the Covenant, according to that passage in Hebrews, um, 
carried in it a jar of manna, the bread of angels, that miraculous bread, the food that was given to the people of Israel in the desert. Well, Jesus is the true bread come down from heaven that gives life to the world, and Mary bore him within her. And then finally, there is the, uh, the, the, according to Hebrews, uh, there was that staff of Aaron that blossomed. If you remember the story from the Old Testament, there is some dispute about who's going to be the priests of the, you know, uh, of the uh, of the new of the old covenant. And uh, Moses has all the leaders of the various uh, families uh, bring their uh, um, a staff, and they present them before the Ark of the Covenant, and. Aaron's staff not only blossoms, but it gives forth uh, almonds. And uh, so it's the sign that Aaron and his descendants are going to be the priests of the old covenant. And that staff then was kept uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. Well, Jesus is the root and branch of Jesse's stem, the true priest of the new covenant, right? And, and Mary bore him. So she is seen as the Ark of the New Covenant, you know, this great majesty of Our Lady contrasted with her simplicity. And so when we look in the writings of Tolkien for Marian images, we're looking for that balance, those two things, beauty, uh, the, 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 the beauty that is both in majesty and simplicity. <coughs> now, we talked in the previous talk I'd mentioned just in passing the Valar, who are these angelic beings in the background of Tolkien's larger legendarium. Um, they're almost like gods, except that they're not, I mean, they're created beings. There's really, there's only one god in Tolkien's uh, writing, and that's Iluvatar, the, the, the father of all. Um, but he creates uh, various gradations of beings, including at the highest of, the, of them are these angelic beings called Valar, uh, who are uh, uh, each take responsibility for a different aspect of creation. And um, Varda, the queen is uh, in charge of the stars, you know, of heaven. And uh, and so the elves call her Elbereth Gilthoniel, star queen, star kindler. And, you know, we've talked about how in The Lord of the Rings, for a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, there's almost no overtly religious practice apparent. But one thing that we do see is the elves singing a hymn to Elbereth. Um, I, this goes back to my misspent youth, I, I, something that I had, uh, uh, you know, having devoured and just uh, 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 read and reread and reread the writings of Tolkien, uh, were, made me, uh, gave me a brief moment of popularity when the movies first came out because um, I had a niece who was graduating from high school and at her graduation party, all her friends were around, you know, the first movie had come out by that point and, and, uh, and she says, Uncle Nathan, Uncle Nathan, say something in Elvish. <laughs> And so, so I recited uh, the Elbereth hymn uh, that the elves sing in the Shire when the hobbits come across them. Elbereth Gilthoniel, Silivren Penamiriel, Lomenel Agral Elenath, Nachaired Palandiriel, Ogalv Remenerath Fanuilos Lelinathon, Nevair Sinevairon. And, uh, but there's another point that I thought was particularly important in The Lord of the Rings. Um, that comes up much later. If you remember, in the Tower of in the in in Kirith Ungol, when when things look the absolute darkest for Sam, Gamgee, and he holds forth the um, the file of Galadriel, 
and words come unbidden to his lips in a language he does not know. And it's a fragment of that same hymn that I just uh, had recited for you, but it's different words. And Tolkien leaves it completely untranslated in the book. It's only if you've had a misspent youth like mine and you decided that you wanted to learn Elvish that you understand it. Um, but Sam says, A Elbereth Gilthoniel, O Menel Palandiriel, Lenalon Sidinguruthos, A Tironin Fanuilos. What does that mean? Well, A Elbereth Gilthoniel, O Elbereth, uh, Star Queen, Star Kindler. But then he says, O Menel Palandiriel, looking down from heaven afar. Lenalon Sidinguruthos. To thee I cry here beneath death horror, which almost is, and there's a there's a valley, Nangurutheb uh, uh, um, in in uh, in the Silmarillion that uses that same uh, uh, that same root word. So there's this you could almost say dark valley or valley of death. Atironin fanuilos, look a watch over me fanuilos. And when you look at that, you think, wait a minute, I've heard that before. That's that has echoes of the Stella Maris and the Salva Regina, especially you know as it leaps uh, you know from Sam's lips unbidden. Um, now of course Tolkien leaves that completely untranslated, but there it is. So I would see um, Elbereth as showing this kind of majesty, beauty in majesty, uh, uh, that is the aspect of the Marian image. There's also the frequent use of the name of Elbereth, which itself is powerful over evil. Um, and, uh, you know, as, uh, uh, as we say, you know, in the, uh, in the novena to Our Lady of Perpetual Help, we, we talk about, uh, 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 the beauty of Mary's name and its power, uh, in, um, in, uh, uh, in, in overcoming, uh, the attacks of the devil. Um, another character, of course, that comes up, and she's not a purely Marian image, again, because we're not talking about allegory. We're not doing like, you know, where you could say like with Tolkien's friend C.S. Lewis and his Narnia stories where Aslan the lion is very much a Christ character. Um, but there, we're talking about applicability here. Another one that comes to mind is Galadriel. Um, Galadriel combines, though, both of these elements of majesty and simplicity. I think there was a there's a wonderful passage uh, in the Lord of the Rings where Sam Gamgee is describing her to Faramir, and he says, "Beautiful she is, sir, lovely. Sometimes like a great tree in flower, sometimes like a white daffodown dilly, small and slender like, hard as diamonds, soft as moonlight." Warm as sunlight, cold as frost in the stars, proud and far off as a snow mountain, and as merry as any lass I ever saw with daisies in her hair in springtime. And her real simplicity, you know, I mean, obviously she's the, the majesty is there. She's this great queen, and she carries one carries one of the the elvish rings of power, you know. Um, but uh, she's but she had the, her real simplicity. I think is shown in the way she triumphs over the temptation for the one ruling ring. She had come. If you if you know the backstory, if you know the Silmarillion, she had come um, uh, over to Middle Earth from Valinor with her kinsman Feanor in his rebellion against the Valar, 
And so is as much in that way an archetype of Eve as of Mary, uh, although Tolkien kind of backtracked from over the course of his writing from involving Galadriel in any way with the with the the really bad aspects of the rebellion, but she did depart with him against the wishes of the Valar with her with her uh, cousin Feanor. Um, but when Frodo offers her the ring and she has this temptation, but she overcomes the temptation and she, she expresses her willingness to fade and be simply Galadriel, where she had first come over to Middle-earth to, with the temptation to establish great realms, and now she was willing to fade. Uh, um, so she overcomes and, and you know, uh, by her simplicity to remain simply Galadriel, it's what cures her of that primordial fault. Just as Mary's fiat cancels Eve's rebellion. Some early church fathers noted, it, the pun only works in Latin, but that Mary's ave cancels Eva's rebellion. Ave being Eva spelled backwards, right? And so where Eve is tempted uh, uh, and takes the fruit, Mary's fiat, let it be done to me according to your will, uh, her, her submission to uh, the will of God uh, is what cancels Eve's rebellion. Uh, and so the early church fathers saw Mary as a new Eve in the same way Galadriel is both Eve and Mary in that respect. There's also the charming parallel, which if you blink, you'll miss it, between Again, going back to the Silmarillion, her, her cousin Feanor is this great craftsman who creates these, he's also a very proud um, uh, character, but he, uh, he creates these great gems, uh, and he wants three strands, he, he wants a stra- her hair, some of the strands of her hair, because she has this beautiful golden hair, and he's going to create gems out of her hair, and three times she refuses his request for a strand of her hair to cast into a gem, but... In the Lord of the Rings, Gimli the dwarf requests from her only a, a, a strand of her hair, and she gives him three of them, three hairs, uh, three strands of hair from her head, and he is going to make them into gems that will be an heirloom of his house. So we see this simplicity and majesty in Galadriel. And then, of course, uh, another Marian figure that we can't pass over, even though she she's always in the background. She's not so much in the foreground of the story, but, but she's a very important character. And that's Arwen Undomio, uh, who is, who marries Aragorn. And, um, in particular, I, uh, there's a passage in the Lord of the Rings where it is on her behalf, her special pleading on behalf of Frodo so that he could go to the undying lands and be healed of his hurts. Um, and in the same way, uh, we see Mary as Queen Mother of Heaven uh, in a special role as our intercessor with Christ. You know, a good son is not going to refuse his mother any request. And so while we go to him directly, too, we also go to his mother and ask, um, ask for her intercession. And then there's another character that we really only come across in uh, the... Um, appendices to the Lord of the Rings, and that's Aragorn's mother, Gilrain. Um, 
Uh, remember, Aragorn we saw as in our previous talk as something of a Christ figure, and so Gilren, as his mother, is something of a Marian figure. And in her, we see the sorrowing mother, the you know, the, like we see with Mary as you know, pierced with a sword of sorrows. Um, and then also another thing that that uh, uh, you know you can miss if you don't pay attention. The big climax of the Lord of the Rings, when the ring is destroyed and the whole new, you know, um, uh, the world is is saved and uh, the new age begins, the ring is destroyed on March 25th. Well, what is March 25th? That's Our Lady's Day, the Feast of the Annunciation, which the church fathers, some of them, saw not only uh, as uh, the central moment of human history when God became man, uh, at the incarnation, but also as the first day of creation of the world. And some of them saw it also as the day of our Lord's crucifixion. So all of it comes together that uh, that we see these Marian images uh, in the Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings, they depart from Rivendell on December 25th. Well, that's Christmas Day. And they complete the quest on March 25th, which uh, is uh, the... Uh, which you know, in our calendar is the Feast of the Annunciation. Of course, I know some of you, I can't risk not being pedantic here. Of course, you know that the Hobbit calendar it follows the solar calendar. And so each day is about 11 days earlier than it would be on our Julian calendar because their year starts on their solstice. But let's pass that by and let's talk about December 25th and March 25th and see in these, some of these Marian uh, images, not again allegory, but applicability. And now we're going to move on, and our next and final talk will be a summary of the moral vision of the uh, Tolkien's uh, Middle Earth and and the Legendarium. <laughs>